the first kingdom, the first empire that conquered Jerusalem was the Babylonian Empire in 586 B.C. That was basically the Babylonian Empire, the world's first world empire. It was powerful to a degree. But Babylon was overthrown. Even though that city, Babylon, had walls that were viewed as being inconquerable, that no army could take this city, we know what happened in 539. We know that Cyrus the Great, I mean, I love this story. Cyrus the Great, with his wisdom, came up with an idea that he would divert the river Euphrates that ran underneath the walls into Babylon and enter the city through water that was only about waist high because they diverted so much of the water. The distance for a soldier to try to swim through was almost impossible for anybody to swim through and survive. The distance was too far, the way the river cut under the wall and the direction that it went. So he comes up with this plan. He diverts the Euphrates or part of the Euphrates River into the basin. And, and when the people of Babylon were having a party, they were getting drunk, they were having a festival. He did it at just the right time. He diverted the water and his troops walked through the riverbed in waist deep, hip deep water and basically took that city over without a fight. That's how Persia took over the Babylonian kingdom. And Persia became known. It became so great under Cyrus and the following leaders like Darius the Great that it became known as the first world superpower. And they were. They were a superpower. Their territory encompassed from the Baltic Peninsula of Europe to the Indus Valley of Northwest India and south into Egypt. They had a tremendous territory. They established communication, trade routes, roads, and the world's first postal system between three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Amazing. They created all kinds of art form, metalwork, rock carvings, architecture, carpet, carpet weaving. We know today of the Persian rugs that they're still famous for. This was all developed under the Persian Empire. And then Darius the Great built a huge palace in Susa. Xerxes and Artaxerxes added to that palace. It became an amazing palace. And this is a sketch, should be the first slide, of based on the uh, archaeology, the digs. This is what, I mean, this is the kind of place where Nehemiah worked as cupbearer cup for Artaxerxes. This is the empire in which he 
have a significant part. He was like an elite person in that empire. He was the cupbearer. The cupbearer was totally trusted by the emperor, by the king, Artaxerxes in this case. So he had great responsibility, great authority, high pay, high esteem. He was trusted by the king. He had an elite position. Now, with that in mind, I want you to imagine what it must have been like for Nehemiah in particular, but also for the Jews, to leave Persia. As we've talked about over the preceding weeks in Nehemiah, they left Persia and went back to a city that had been destroyed hundred and some years earlier in 586 B.C. They left the comforts of Persia. This was a modern empire for that day. They moved to a desolate land in Judah. While the temple had already been rebuilt, Nehemiah returned to a city with walls that were in ruins. The houses lay in ruins. The walls were described as rubble or dust. It had stones that were burnt in the midst of that dust piles and stones that were broken. That's how Nehemiah describes the conditions that they went back to. It was a desolate place. It had a very limited social structure when Nehemiah returned. No protection from their enemies, no security, and very few houses in Jerusalem would have been livable at that point. Nehemiah arrived to a task that would have been overwhelming. We read about it. We studied it. We spoke about it. The overwhelming task that they faced and wanting to even give up at times. At least the people did. But in leaving Persia, leaving the comforts and the position that Nehemiah left and returning to take on the task that he took in the location that he took it was an example of faith, leaving behind the comforts of Persia. Nehemiah lived as an example of faith, and we thank God for his example. But we must never forget there's something much more important here. It's not about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an example of what God can do in the life of a fallen, sinful creature. It's easy to look at Nehemiah and think of him as some great man. But when we look at Nehemiah, we must remember it's what God did in that man. That he was a sinner just like you and I. He had the sin nature. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes Nehemiah. It includes everyone that's not virgin born. For all have sinned and continually fall. The word in the Greek there, fall short, is in the present. It's to continually. Not only do we fall short, it's not just based upon one event in our life, one sin that we've committed. We continually fall short of God's glorious standard. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, 
and was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he repented of his sins, admitting that his sins were against God and God alone. But he also makes this important admission. Yes, he had sinned, but it went back much further than a particular sin. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. We know from the word of God that we are born in sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We're born in sin. And Nehemiah was no different. Nehemiah was born in sin. And so let's be careful when we think about the example that Nehemiah was and leading those people back, leaving the comforts of Persia to go and take on an overwhelming test, let's not lift up Nehemiah too much. Let's remember that he is the example to us because of what God did in his life. He was born a sinner just like you and I. In sin, his mother conceived him. He was a sinner on whom God worked. He was a sinner in whom, because of God's work, believed God. And God made a difference in his life. And we must never, ever forget that. That we not exalt biblical characters. That we exalt the God of the biblical characters. That's what matters. It's what God can do in a man's life. And if we will ever be used by God, it'll be because he works in our lives by his grace. We are nothing. I'm nothing. It's only Him. And it's by His grace and mercy that He uses us at all. That He saves us. That He places us into His service. Actually, it wasn't just Nehemiah that exercised some faith here. The Jews exercised faith that went with Him. That left Persia behind. Nehemiah led the way, but the people also believed God. Remember, not all Jews followed Nehemiah. Some remained. This was the third return to Judah. Not the first, the third. And even still, some Jews remained in Persia. They weren't willing to leave the comforts. So when these people left, no doubt they left behind relatives in some cases, relatives that they loved and care about, but they gave up those close relationships to serve God, to be called of God to go back to Judah, to rebuild the walls, to secure the city, to secure the temple, to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. We must remember that this was a, just by the way the crow flies, this was over 1,000 miles from Susa back to Jerusalem, was over 1,000 miles. So they're taking on a tremendous journey, a difficult journey, returning to a city that lie in ruins. And they knew they were facing a task that was unbelievable. When those men, left Persia, they knew that their families would suffer. They were giving up comforts. They would have to make sacrifices to do what God called them to do. 
Yet these Jews committed to the kingdom left the luxuries of Persia for a desolate city of Jerusalem. All to take on an overwhelming task. Not knowing if and when they would ever have a comfortable life again like the life that they were leaving behind. What we see in these Jewish men and women are people because of God's gracious, redeeming work in their lives, in their history. God was the one. It was Yahweh that had redeemed them out of Israel. And they had recounted that history and what God had done. It's because of that. It was because of God's gracious, redeeming work that they were willing to live for something greater than themselves, than their comforts. They sacrificed their personal kingdoms for the lasting, eternal kingdom of God. They gave up their own desires, their own purposes, their own plans for something greater. And the sacrifice continues. The wall is built. Houses are not restored, but the wall is built. And we come to Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. It tells us, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities or the villages, in other words. Notice the leaders in verse 1 are already living in Jerusalem. But at least most of the rest of the people were living in the surrounding villages. So the people cast lots to, to determine who was going to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, and who would remain in the villages. One-tenth one would stay or would move to Jerusalem. Nine-tenths would stay in the villages. So what was this dividing up the people to live inside and outside Jerusalem all about? Well, verses 3 through 19 records the leaders who lived in Jerusalem. And the, you know, the families are assumed there. Verses 20 through 36 that we read records the leaders who lived in the surrounding villages. And remember... What we know about these names is limited, not having the context that the people of that day would have. But you see them here making a decision, casting lots to determine who's going to live in Jerusalem. Notice verse 2, and the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So apparently there's some besides the one-tenth that said, you know, you don't have to cast lots for us. We're going to choose to live in Jerusalem by our own will. And these people were blessed by the, by the people. These volunteers, I should say, were blessed by the people for choosing to live in Jerusalem. So why was it honorable to make this decision to live in Well, I think it's obvious that the best place to live was in the surrounding cities and villages. We might think that Jerusalem would be 
the location of preference, but it was not. It's not so. We must understand one of the key reasons the capital city needed a wall was the capital city was the place that the conquering army would attack first. The cities where the main leaders lived. It's the place of power, government, and economics. To conquer and control a capital was to control all the people. And although the wall now provided some protection, no wall, no matter how huge, no matter how thick or powerful, could provide complete protection for anyone. I mean, these people that returned, they saw the wall in ruins when they came back. They were reminded, they knew the history that had happened over 100 years prior and how the Babylonians had destroyed the city. So they come back and they're reminded of what can happen. I can see why people might not want to live in Jerusalem because they're thinking, uh, you know, that can happen again. We have no guarantee that God won't allow this to happen again. <clears throat> and also, what's another reason they might not want to live in Jerusalem? The homes at this point were still basically, at least most of them, were still in ruins. Not necessarily the best place to live. So we're talking about a sacrifice. We're talking about people being honored because they volunteered, some of them, to live in Jerusalem. They were making sacrifices for the kingdom of Israel. We might say they were giving up the good life of the villages for the sake of the kingdom. They needed people, just average, ordinary people to live in the city of Jerusalem. They also believed that the promised king would one day come to Jerusalem. These were people that knew about the Davidic covenant they knew 2 Samuel chapter 7. They knew the word of God. God had promised that a descendant of David, not like Saul, not like David, or not like a king like Solomon, but a king that would reign forever would one day come, that would be a descendant of David and establish an eternal kingdom. So choosing to, lo- to, to move from Persia to, to Judah, and now these people in Judah choosing to live in Jerusalem is examples of sacrificing for the kingdom. These were acts of people that believed the promises of God. Can I suggest to us today that God has called us to make sacrifices for the kingdom, for the church of Jesus Christ. Serving the Lord involves sacrifice. We've talked about this a couple times before. Christianity is not a bed of roses. It's not your best life now. It's hope in the life to come. It's living with an eternal perspective. The book of Nehemiah, to some degree, is about living for eternity. It's about what God does in the life of those that he calls out of the world. It's about living for God's glory and his kingdom. 
And I can't help but be reminded back to not that far back in the summer to Hebrews 11. It's hard not to make reference in this book back to Hebrews. The sacrifices that the Jewish people made by, by faith as we read chapter 11, Moses in particular. Listen to these three verses from Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. Speaking of Moses, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now remember the the blessings that he had and what, not blessings, but the privileges that he had being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill, ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Notice, it's not that Moses was not looking or seeking treasure. He sought treasures that Egypt could not offer. He sought treasures that this world could not offer. He sought an eternal reward. And that's what we see in these people in Nehemiah, seeking an eternal reward, being willing to give up and to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom, believing the promises of God about that land and about the coming Messiah. See, faith sacrifices the pleasures of sin for eternal treasures. That's faith in action. Faith sacrifices our physical comforts for God's purposes. Faith sacrifices our own kingdoms, and we all seek to have our own kingdom at times. We want to have our way and control people around us and get things that we want. Faith sacrifices our own kingdoms for the kingdom of God, not seeking to rule our own lives, but submitting to the Lord of Lords. That's faith. Faith sacrifices our own names for the name of God and causes us to offer sacrifices of praise, Hebrews chapter 13. See, the man of faith lives not for today, but for an eternal reward. The man of faith dies to self and sin to live for Christ. The man of faith lives for a kingdom that is not of this world. Faith in action. The Apostle Paul uses this principle of sacrificing because of what God has done for us, just like we see in Nehemiah. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is from the International Standard Version. I therefore urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God, your reasonable worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be continuous, but continuously be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to determine what God's will is, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. Paul urges these Roman believers in view of the mercies of God. Do you see what's happening here? 
I beseech you, I urge you, therefore, brethren, in view of the mercies of God. He is referring back to chapters 1 through 11, and he entitles it the mercies of God. Because really, that's what chapters 1 through 11 in the book is all about. And he's begging, he's urging a response in light of these chapters. The first chapter, verses 1 through 17, is an introduction to the book. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul basically gives us the theme of the entire book. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And there you find the theme. But as you go through the book, Paul breaks it down. Chapters 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, 20, verse 20, is the wrath of God revealed against sinful man. So Paul declares those without the law, law, Gentiles, to be guilty before God because they suppress the truth of God revealed through creation. In chapter 2, verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 8, Paul declares those with the law, the Jews, are judged and found guilty because they do not keep the law. They're unable to keep the law. And then in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he declares all men or all men unrighteous and in sin. We're familiar with chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one. Not me. Not you. No one. But in light of that, in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21, God's gracious provision for sinful man is revealed. And I want you to do something now. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3. What a significant passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. And I want us to read, read along with me as I read to you. Basically, proclaiming the source of righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. The law has found us all to be guilty. And, uh, I mean, we had already seen none righteous, no, not one. But in, as he continues in chapter 3, before you get to this text, Paul reveals the purpose of the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. See, the purpose of the law is to shut the mouths of those that want to proclaim their own righteousness, their own goodness, to show us that we have no righteousness of our own, that our righteousnesses are like filthy rags before a holy God. They mean nothing. No matter what we do, no matter how we think we might live, we cannot be good enough. We're sinners before God. And when we come to that place that we understand our own sin and our guilt before a God, we understand what we really deserve, the judgment of God, eternal judgment. 
It's then that God's grace takes on significance. And that's what we see in these verses. Chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Look at these verses. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and all continually fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. See, we have no righteousness. None whatsoever. Let's be honest with ourselves. It's when we come to the end of ourselves and we see our own sinfulness and our own guilt before God and we realize we need God's grace, that there's no hope for us apart from the grace of an almighty God, our creator, our redeemer. Verse 23 again, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's a gift. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he continues, through the redemption, being bought back out of the slave house of sin, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. A propitiation? A satisfying sacrifice? See, I cannot satisfy God's demand for the payment of my sin. I can't do anything, and the law screams that out to you and me. There's nothing that we can do before God to be right before Him, but His sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but for all those who believe. He is the satisfying sacrifice. He satisfied God's demand for my sin, and I look to him by his grace through faith, trusting what he did for me. What great salvation we have in Christ Jesus. We are sinners before a holy God, but by his grace, through his free gift of salvation, we look to him in faith, believing what he did for us. Folks, his sacrifice totally satisfied God's demand for the payment of my sin. And we continue. Whom God put forth again as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He did not judge, but he waited until the fullness of time came, until God would send his son. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. And don't miss this so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is so God can still... God doesn't just overlook sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet and leave it there and just pretend like it's not true, like there were never any sins. He deals with the sins. 
Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins so that God can still be just and yet justify those who have faith in Jesus. God declares us righteous, those who have faith in Jesus, because of his grace. It's through grace, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Folks, what a salvation we have in Christ Jesus. This is the God that loved us when we were yet sinners. And there's so much more. We don't have time to do all this. But he gives us an example of righteousness. Abraham and David. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him or imputed to him for righteousness. He talks about the blessing of righteousness, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and a standing in grace. And he talks about the imputation of righteousness being placed on the account, God's righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness given to us as a gift. In chapter 6, 7, and 8, we see sanctification through identification with Christ's death and resurrection. Chapters 9 and 10, God's amazing plan of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. And then we come to the end of chapter 11. Before we get to these verses in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he closes with a doxology. He closes with praise to God because of his amazing grace and his mercy all the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen several sermons in those four verses. But Paul says, in view of God's mercy, he urges the Romans, he urges believers to totally present themselves as living sacrifices, to forsake the comforts, the pleasures of this world, and give ourselves totally to God in light of what he's done for us. And so I beseech you today as well, by the mercies of God, to offer yourselves for the kingdom of heaven, for God's kingdom, for the church of Jesus Christ, for this local body, Cornerstone Church. Just like Nehemiah who left Persia, just like the Jews who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, God has called us to give up, to be willing at least. Sometimes it's needed to give up the comforts, the luxuries of this life, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to serve the body of Christ. I can't tell you how excited that I was over the last couple of days to see your response to the building that we found in Forest Brook or on Forest Brook Road your willingness to plan, to work, to sacrifice, it's already been made evident. And in some cases, your willingness to give above and beyond what you're already giving to make this a reality. We understand this is a step of faith. We understand this requires sacrifice and work. 
But we also believe God has given us an amazing opportunity, an opportunity for ministry. And you know, I was thinking, and I was thinking about the building this week, when Paul, the Apostle Paul was preaching in the synagogue at Ephesus for actually some time there, opposition among some of the Jews rose up. And they had to find another place to meet. And they began to meet in the hall of Tyrannus. It was a lecture hall. The man's name that was least responsible or owned the hall was Tyrannus. The word means tyrant. So I don't really know what kind of a man he was, but that's the man that they rented from. Or we believe at least they rented the building. A lot of scholars think that's what it's implying. This is not uncommon throughout church history to rent facilities for God's glory. God has given us an opportunity, an open door. And I want us to pray this morning after we have a song, I want us to pray. Yes, we'll pray for the nation. But I want us to pray that God would use us. You know, when things are going bad in a nation, regardless of what's really going on, and I'm not sure that we even know, but people are panicking. And things are difficult for a lot of people. Whether it's hype or some degree of reality, I don't know. But I know that when people are hurting and people are afraid, it gives us opportunities to share. You know, God has to quicken the heart. But we need to be faithful to share. And we need to pray as we move ahead as a church that God will give us opportunities to serve him. Open doors to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world and that we will not miss those opportunities in light of God's amazing grace in view of his mercies just like for Nehemiah and the people of his day that made sacrifices may we be willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of the living God let's pray together Father, thank you that we can call on your name this morning. Lord, you are worthy of our hearts. You're worthy of our desires. God, may our desires and our focus be fixed upon you. May we be willing to do whatever's needed to serve you, to move ahead for your glory. May we not miss any opportunities. So we, may we move ahead with prayer and fasting and reading and seeking you in your word that we might be led by you. Lord, you have appointed elders in this church, but Christ is the head. May we follow the true head of the church. In Jesus' name.